Okay, here's uh, the baskets coming around. So this will go to LBT, Lutheran Bible Translators. And it will start... This is great. Nobody's listening. Okay. It'll start right over here. LBT. Drop a couple bucks in if you got it. Um, and just if you can do this sort of in an organized manner and send it around the back. And if this all works out the way I planned, it will end right here with Carol Hydorn. <laughs> Chances are that's not going to happen. Uh, but if you don't get it by the end, let us know and uh, we'll pass that around, okay? Just stand where you are for one second if you're up. Simon says stand. <laughs> I can't control him, Maddie. I can only hope to contain him. Okay. Where'd he go? He went home, yeah. Okay, let's pray. I mean, this is, here's the good news. I was, uh, I was talking with someone after the service. This congregation has so much joy these days, and you can tell even down here. So why don't we pray and, uh, and thank God for all the joy we've got and uh, give us an extra dose of joy going forward. Let us pray. The Lord be with you. Lord Jesus Christ, you are the joy of all loving hearts, and we thank you for granting us a share in that joy as we have a share in your Eucharistic feast. Strengthen us now, enliven us, and make us joyful folks as we leave here, that we share, uh, share with others that life that we have in your own dear Son, and call others to the fullness of the faith. Through your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Amen. Thanks for coming back. Okay. <laughs> yeah, right. Now, you should have, uh, Jack, Jack Smith was a little, uh, he was an eager beaver over here. Uh, and you should have three sheets coming around. One that says stages of hipster Christianity. You should have a big sheet, which was from Pastor Bruzek a couple weeks ago. Amended a little bit, yeah. Yes, this is, a supple this is the second iteration. And then you should have also a one-page front and back outline for today that has uh, finding your spot and working your spot on the top of it. Okay, everybody have those? No, okay. What's that? I know. Not even a member here. This is great. This is one vote for ordination of women. <laughs> that was a joke. <laughs> the vicar's got him. That's all right. No, you're doing great. Yes, it is a matter, but everybody's got an opinion. Sheil, how are you, buddy? What? <laughs> Well, the only mistake Mueller's ever made since he's been here is to play a labore once at chapel, and ever since then we've been singing it. It's great. All right. Everybody have three handouts? Should have three. Everybody have three? All right. First thing. Well, I'm sorry, what? <laughs> the vicar, if you don't know, he was in Florida for a week. Um, that's why. Can you tell by his dad? <laughs> you know. <laughs> Yeah, I, I, <laughs> I'm not going to say anything, I'm not going to say it. I said to Abby, do you think he'll look any different before I came over to church, but okay, uh, uh, the vicar, you know, was in Florida having margaritas um, while we were all working this week, that's why he stood up and said, this is the apostle of the Lord <laughs> at 9 a.m., that was good, love you, buddy. <laughs> No, your big mistake was not getting me a new car. That was your big mistake. I think I'm ready, Justin. Oh, boy. Okay. So uh, what we want to do is, you know, we would sort of expected we might be in the new place by now. Um, 
obviously that was that dream was not a reality. Uh, so we got a little while longer. We got you know a few weeks to kill. I don't know exactly how long, but a few weeks. Plus we've got a couple voters meetings coming up. So you know if we sort of think in maybe four or five week uh, sessions here, let's try to get one more um, one more session of preparation toward we uh, toward the new space. So I want to go to I want to go to Philippians today and look at Philippians. But the first thing I want to do is give you this thing, hipster Christianity. Take a look at this. This will be a nice lead-in, I think. Um, this guy, Andrew Stoddard, is uh, a student at Wheaton College. When I go to the gym over there, they always have their Wheaton record, which is like the Wheaton College newspaper. It's fascinating to read um, because nobody has more opinions than students. And believe me, they share them in these things. So I usually read this when I'm at the gym. It comes out on Fridays. And this one I found very interesting about hipster Christianity. So just take a look at this. Let me read this to you. It's not that long. But it gives you a sense of the culture today, at least the sense at um, you know, a, a hyper or uber evangelical college like Wheaton. All of these articles popping up about quote unquote hipster Christianity have got me thinking. They've got me thinking that the emergent church has simply been outcooled by liturgical iconic worship. Isn't that interesting? That right there, that's fascinating to me. But uh, do you know what the emergent church is? You've heard of the emergent church? You know what that is? Can somebody in like five words or less tell us all what it is? Okay, confused? Yeah, that would be good. The emergent church plays a, yeah, yeah, it's, in some sense it's, it look, here's the thing, it has some very appealing elements. It's mysterious, it's dark, it's iconic. Um, it's tactile, it's all these sorts of things, but at the end of the day, it's all about me because there's no overarching sort of uh, doctrinal structure that leads you from darkness to light. So, you know, if you ever go to an emergent service, it'll look something like this. Walk in, and if you want to have the Eucharist first, you go have the Eucharist. If you want to paint an icon, you go paint an icon. If you want to light a candle, you light a candle, and everybody sort of moves around at their own pace over the course of a couple hours. Now, all those things in and of themselves are very helpful. But what you notice right away is if everybody's moving around, is that chaos or order? Chaos, exactly. So that's, it does like community because it's all about you. You do what you want to do. And you are the master of your own spiritual maturity. Yes. Thank you. That wasn't even a plant, but that was good. That was four words. That's why I love you. Okay, yeah, did you hear that? Eastern Orthodoxy meets Starbucks. Okay, that's basically what it is. It does play to a certain extent to what the culture wants. We've talked long and hard about what postmodernism is. Um, and, and many of the things offered, again, in and of themselves, are very appealing to postmoderns. But there's no overarching ordered structure which helps you move from weakness to strength, from darkness to light. Here's the basic pattern I've noticed amongst a significant portion of my peer group. It takes place in three stages. Stage one, growing up in an evangelical Christian family or at least a family with some sort of Judeo-Christian values. For whatever reason, it seems like at least 30% of the current church population is upset by the fact that their parents were evangelicals and taught them that the Bible contains truth. How dare the baby boomer generation do that to us? A lot of them were hippies and did some crazy stuff before becoming Christians. <laughs> if you chuckled, that's you. It's like when I say in a wedding sermon, you're going to roll over some morning and say there must be some mistake, and inevitably, most of the crowd looks at you like, I wonder if he's joking, and a few people chuckle, and I usually say, if they're chuckling, it's happened to them. Okay? It's not fair that they brainwash us with sloganized American evangelicalism. Think 
Thomas Kincaid, okay? Oh, true, it's true. Think Thomas Kincaid. That's sort, of, that's sort of the demographic. That's the generation. I mean, we all want our future kids to grow up knowing and loving Jesus. But the way our parents did it was totally wrong. Besides, all they care about is the American dream. <laughs> so any wisdom they have, we can dismiss, right? Well, maybe not. But what is the American dream? Yeah, own a home, retire, have enough money in your IRA, pursue happiness. Ultimately, again, it's about whom? Me. Right, good. And here's the thing, postmoderns, real postmoderns, don't care about those sorts of things. You've heard about this thing called the new monasticism. It's a group of evangelicals, not Catholics, not Orthodox, not even Lutherans. There are Lutheran monks, you know. Um, but a, a group of evangelicals who are leaving everything behind to go live in the city, to help poor people, to help educate kids that can't go to school, and they live a very monastic life even though they're not monks or nuns. That's what this is talking about. Stage two. Let's leave those oppressive, irrelevant megachurches and have church in the basement of a bar with seven other people who are equally upset. It's cool, though, because my spirit really resonates with candles and slam poetry. An acceptable alternative to the bar church is the highly unorganized house church. And the house church, unfortunately, is in some sense a product of Lutheranism. The pietistic movement that started in Germany with a guy named Spener, he wrote this book called Pia Desideria, Pious Desires, quickly moved to the Scandinavian countries. You know any Scandinavians? Yeah, okay. Well, just remember this next time we talk to them. Scandinavians are highly pietistic. And when they moved to the United States, ultimately what they started was the Wisconsin Synod of the Lutheran Church. Which, you know, if you know anything about the Wisconsin Synod, it's highly pietistic, no dancing, right? No drinking. And also, there's no sense of authority in the church. Everybody's equal. So they call teachers ministers of the gospel. Uh, yeah, not quite. If we do, we shouldn't do it that way. Yeah, for taxes. And all you have to do is read the Wall Street Journal on the event in Michigan with a small Lutheran church where some teacher is suing over that, so we'll see what happens. But the point is there's no structure in their church, and to a certain extent, they're highly pietistic. The things of life that people enjoy, they don't engage in. I don't think anything good can come from Iowa. <laughs> They all think I'm making fun of you. I'm just being serious. I've been to Iowa. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, the, the, the New Testament, I mean, Acts 2, that kind of church always had a pastor, and the reason they met in houses was they didn't have churches because Christianity was illegal. Yeah. So once, once Christianity becomes legal, what you have is big cathedrals being built, and you remember what, what are the, why do we have deaconesses? We have deaconesses because deaconesses would go into the homes of a very patriarchal society and call the women out first who would then go and do what? Join the church, exactly. So you know, to say the institutional church isn't Jesus' church means you really haven't read the history books. It is Jesus' church. It starts in a home because everybody else is getting killed. Besides this type of church, this is down near the bottom of the first column, really cares about the marginalized and the least of these, which is why it consists entirely, this is great, so this church cares about the marginalized and the least of these, which is why it consists entirely of middle-class white people who actually grew up going to church. Isn't that fascinating? In this stage, buzzwords like postmodernism, relevant, cons uh, conservation, community, and journey are really cool. You can spot this a mile away when people use the word postmodernism and you say, what do you mean? And they say, 
uh, postmodern. You know, if you can't describe it, you don't know what it is, and that's sort of characteristic of this group. Note, it's only cool to be on a spiritual journey in this phase. Arriving at the truth seems kind of arrogant, right? The church needs to calm down about sin, moral issues, and hell, and focus more on the social gospel. It's in this stage as well that most people will try something completely out of the ordinary, like sleeping on the streets with homeless people for a week. During that time, they will make all sorts of rash promises and decisions. Two weeks later, they'll be back at Starbucks buying a $7 drink, reading The Economist, and texting their friends from their Blackberry. <laughs> You've seen this. Stage three. Whoa. Whoa. That emergent thing was a huge mistake. I really need to get in touch with the roots of the faith. I think it's time to go to a liturgical church. It doesn't really matter what their preaching is like because stage three years still have the evangelical gospel of their youth. Think Billy Graham. The important thing is that everyone in church is really educated, enlightened, you know. A lot of individuals in this stage are thinking about converting to Orthodox Christianity or Catholicism or at least trying it out for a while. The order is nice, and the unity is certainly a bonus. The church is bigger than you. Plus, since I really still think about the world as an evangelical, I feel at liberty to pick and choose which parts of a high church I support. <laughs> so who's still in charge? You. A lot of people in stage three will start reading academic theology. And by that, they mean they are reading 19th century German theologians who want to separate the historical Jesus from the uh, mythical Christ of faith. Somehow this is faith-forming for stage three-ers. When you ask someone in this category, or in stage two for that matter, to explain their faith, they often can't. It's too complicated to state in a way that makes sense. In actuality, they're pretty, pretty pluralistic, and using absolutes is scary. Also, they've learned to use a lot of qualifiers such as, it seems, or it is most likely, or I'm not certain, but here's what Hans Urs von Balthasar believes. That's the way I operate at district conventions. Me personally. Well, it seems. <laughs> hey, I'll send it off. Uh, so what is stage four? What sort of trajectory are we on as a Christian subculture? I hope, I sincerely hope, that stage four is some sort of combination of the three prior segments of our collective journey. I hope we take the doctrines of our faith preached to us in our youth, combine those with an open mind, and care for the poor, and combine that with a desire to authentically connect to the roots of our faith. I hope that this humorous look at the ins and outs of what's trendy helps us to realize the importance of clinging to the gospel. You can try to repackage it, reshape it, and sell it in different ways. But the truth of the matter is that we need Christ and that we need to preach Christ. Okay? Now, what would my reaction be to this article? He should come to St. John. <laughs> right? So I'm going I'm to look this guy up, Andrew Stoddard, and write him an email and say, hey, I read your article. You're looking for this church. I got this, just the church for you. Here's the thing. What he's identified is whenever you say you're in a stage of Christianity, and as he calls it, hipster stages, evangelicalism, emergent church, or quote-unquote the liturgical movement, what he's identified is in all of those stages, so long as you're making the decision, it's utterly self-centered. And what he's pushing people towards, I think, is a church that's firmly rooted in the gospel, that's given to mystery and light and charity and service, but which has the objective standard, the objective outline of the liturgy to carry us from this life to the next. That's what we're after here at St. John. And I would propose to you that that's precisely what some of the, some of the churches in the Bible have. Really, only one church kind of gets it right, and I would say that's the Philippian church. So open up your Bible to Philippians. 
Remember, all these other churches have tons of problems. But for some reason, um, it seems to work in Philippi. So if we're looking for, a, for an ideal congregation in the next nine and a half minutes, um, we, gotcha. we might, uh, might want to look here. Now, I'm not going to take you through the whole book this time, but it's very short. It's only three or four chapters. Um, so what I think we should do is take a look at the whole book over the next few weeks. Now, you should have, everybody have one of these? Everybody got one? Now, here's the thing. Pastor Bruzek did a brilliant job drawing this out for you. He basically showed you what the cycle, or maybe it's not a cycle, maybe it's linear, what the linear life of a Christian is like. You start in Eden, there's the fall, sin causes chaos. When things are chaotic, you feel alone and unloved. What brings you back? What's your comfort, beauty, mercy, spirituality, community? All that, as I said in the paper that I gave at the district convention, all four of those things can be found in the liturgy. And then here at St. John, here's the contour of the liturgy. Prayer, scripture, baptism, Eucharist, witness, generosity, mercy. Those are all cures for our collective problems. And from that flows mercy, community, and witness. And suddenly then your life is transformed as you embody the person of Christ. Now here's the thing. This cycle is not just unique for us. Every church ever, that ever existed has gone through this cycle. And I would propose to you part of the reason that the Philippian congregation works is because they've made their way through this cycle themselves. It's very easy to get to the chaos point and sort of say, this is all we can do, or get to the alone and unloved point where nobody comes back to church. But it's very hard to go from alone and unloved to beauty, community, spirituality, and justice within the liturgy and then be sent out to live the life that Christ has called you to live. And I think Philippians gets that right. So let's go through at least the first chapter in the next couple minutes. We'll see if we can do that. As I go through, start to fill in on your, diag on your outline here where Philippians matches up with this. I think it's all over. So where Philippians shows you an Eden life and then a chaotic life, an Eden life and an alone life, okay? Side by side, you should have your outline. You know, the first question on the outline is a bit redundant because we've talked about this enough, but I put it on there at least for you to think about. If you take a look at that, where are we? You know, the troubled church in the troubled world. I was stunned this morning as I put on, um, I didn't get up in the morning to watch it, but I did get up somewhat early to watch the beatification of John Paul II. And what I was stunned by was how much people loved him. Um, and he was truly a pope of a troubled church in a troubled time. I mean, if you think about communism, the fall of the Berlin Wall, all those sort of, and really the exit from the era of modernism. He was the pope that saw him through that, whatever you think about him. And it was amazing to me to see the reaction of people. People were there, and they were, I mean, even Pope Benedict XVI was, you know, emotionally engaged in this event. That shows you not only how much they loved him, but it also shows you how difficult our times have been. So the troubled church in a troubled world, ecumenism has lost its way. You know, we, don't, we talk a lot about other churches. We don't ever talk to other churches. Denominations, I heard there are over 30,000 now. They're all crumbling, and tags become meaningless. Someday it'll be sacra sacramental people and non-sacramental people. Who's in charge, and who's to blame? All of us are fearful of being alone and unloved, and there are plenty of other things. You don't need to give them to me now, but there are plenty of other things that bother you theologically. And that just gives you a little insight into how troubled our world is. So how can we live free of all that? St. Paul 
in Philippians. So look at Philippians chapter 1. And just as you listen to this, does this sound like Eden or not? Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the bishops, the overseers, the episcopos, and the deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, just in that, in that brief greeting there, what's the tone of St. Paul? What's the tone of that letter? Yeah, it's utter joy. It's very different than oftentimes the emails you or I send, right? Hey, I can't believe this happened, right? Paul starts off with grace to you and peace. And as you see in your outline there, you know, grace is that great word, chorus, which is the root of Eucharist. So you see there, grace means that which gives joy or pleasure or delight or sweetness or charm or loveliness, or as you keep going, it bestows beauty. And peace is this very rich Greek word, irene, which means it, it, it deals first and foremost with sort of national tranquility. The world is at peace. But it also then deals with prosperity and safety and felicity. When you hear the word felicity, what do you think of? Pureness, yeah. You think of, at least I do, I think of Eden. When you hear the word felicity, when you hear the word beauty, what do you think of? That should, that should start to ring some Eden bells, okay? Verse 3, I thank my God, Greek word, Eucharisteo, I offer a Eucharist to God, I'm grateful, in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with, what's the word? Joy. Because of your partnership, the Greek word is koinonia, because of your Eucharistic fellowship, that's tangible, that's 1 Corinthians because of your koinonia in the gospel, in the good news of Jesus, from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, for God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, what is best, the Greek says, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Now, if you look at your outline, boy, Make jokes about Iowa when time runs out on me. <laughs> yes, he will. If you look at your outline, I think there's a dramatic shift in the text. The first seven or eight verses all sound like Eden. Just look at the words. I'm a slave of the Lord. The, you are most holy people. Um, I greet you with grace. I hope there's peace there. Irene. I thank my God. Eucharisteo. Why? Because we have koinonia in the gospel. But then he goes on to say... I yearn for you. And the Greek word for yearn, look at the bottom of the front side, verse chapter 1-8, is, the, the root is splachna. And Jesus uses this word all the time, a very rich word in the Gospels. Like when Jesus came to the tomb of Lazarus, and it says, you know, he, he, basically he was, he was mournful over his death. The word there is splachna. But this is what it means. When he says, I yearn for you all, 
The way he yearns is from his bowels, from his intestines, or as the Greek says, the heart, the lungs, the liver, etc. The bowels were regarded as the seat of the more violent passions, such as anger and love, but by the Hebrews as the seat of the tender affections, especially kindness, benevolence, compassion, hence our heart, tender mercies, affections, a heart in which mercy resides. Now I would propose to you, or I pose the question, what does this yearning reveal about St. Paul? What does it reveal about St. Paul? You've heard how he thinks of the congregation, like Eden people, but what does this yearning reveal about him? He's sad. Exactly. And why is he sad? Because he's alone. Where is he? He's in prison, and he is alone and unloved. You ever had this feeling where you yearn for somebody else? Usually you don't yearn for somebody else if they're sitting right next to you. You yearn for somebody else when you're separated by time or by space. So St. Paul makes a dramatic shift in his epistle. Hey, you all are filled with grace. You're holy. We're slaves of Jesus. I thank God for you. I love you. There's world peace because of what Christ has done. And then he says, but I yearn for you from my bowels. That's fascinating. Okay? And this, then, as you start to look at your, uh, I'll just call this the Bruzek outline. As you start to look at the Bruzek outline, this should start to fill in some of the gaps. You ever been to prison? Anybody? You ever been to prison? Okay, good. I've been to prison. I've visited folks. What do you know about prison? Yeah, it seems ordered, doesn't it? Because they got big, gar- you know, they got guards and they got big fences. And when you get inside, what's it like? Ordered or chaos? Yeah. No, well, it, it may be order when the guards are there. When the guards aren't there, is it order or chaos? It's chaos. And here's the thing: even in prison, you don't want to be alone and unloved. What's the worst place they can put you in prison? Solitary confinement. And so, what happens in prison? You ever go to Cook County? If you're not in a gang when you go in, you will be very quickly afterwards. Why? Because even there, they form bonds, communities. At the core of our existence, we don't want to be alone and we don't want to be in love, even if it's in prison. Now think about St. Paul. He certainly is alone. He certainly is unloved. And yet, even in the middle of that, think of the way he talks to this Philippian congregation. I love you. You give me such joy. And yet, he himself feels alone and unloved. His life is chaos. He doesn't know if he's going to make it out alive, which he will tell us about next week, because it's 11 o'clock. So, Do you have any questions? No questions. Okay. Uh, Come back next week, please. We will. uh, So here's here's what we're going to do. Keep looking at Philippians, four chapters. We'll spend four or five weeks doing that. We do have a voters meeting in the midst of all of that. Um, But this should be good groundwork for going next door, and then next door we'll do some fun stuff when we start Bible study over there, okay? Lord, remember us in your kingdom and teach us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen.